There is no greater joy or no greater subject for those of us who publicly proclaim the gospel than to talk about what we just sang about. How great is our God? It's my favorite thing to be able to stand before you and talk about. So can I just check this out this morning and see if I'm in the right place? Can we agree that our God is great and greatly to be praised? So you agree with me about that. I think I can tell by the way you worshiped Him today. And thank you, Gerard and Javon, for leading us in worship today. We love you so much. I just wonder if I get to heaven, if I'll be able to rear back and sing those notes that, that Gerard can sing. I don't know if I can or not. Brent and Janice are vacationing, and so we will be anxious for them to get back safely. So even when I talk about how great is our God, now you, you know me well enough to know there's always a song in it for me somewhere. I, I just, I, I try to fight them away, that, but there's just too many songs stored up in here somewhere. And no matter what subject I get on or what, you know, it comes out in a song somehow because I've been doing that for the last, oh, five or ten years. So when it comes... <clears throat> To, it always comes to my mind, there's a certain song that comes to my mind when I think about the greatness of God, and I've mentioned it to you before, but it just, it's just always there, and it says this, though man may strive to go beyond the reach of space, to crawl beyond the distant, glimmering stars, this world is a room so small within my master's house, the open sky, but a portion of his yard. That's the verse. The chorus says, how big is God? How big and wide his vast domain? To try to tell, these lips can only start. You see, he's big enough to rule his mighty universe. I said, he's big enough to rule his mighty universe, and yet he's small enough to live within my heart. Can you just say hallelujah to that today? Yeah. Our God is a God of balance. God is a God of love, but He's not just a God of love. He's a jealous God. He's not just jealous. He's also faithful. He's not only faithful, He's also full of judgment, but He's not only full of judgment, He's also full of peace. And I don't know if you've noticed or not, but God has an amazing way of bringing balance to everything in life. He is the great balancer. For you see, balance is what makes something beautiful. Say that with me. Balance is what makes, and God is the most perfectly balanced being in the universe. Let me, let me give you the example from when we consider the fruit of the Spirit, it is Jesus who models every fruit of the Spirit that we are commanded to have in our lives. Now, we know that Galatians chapter 5 uh, gives us what the fruit of the Spirit is. If that's something you've not studied in a while, I recommend you go, you go back there. If you're new in your walk with Christ, go study Galatians chapter 5 and, and, and see what it says about the fruit of the Spirit. Now, we know it's love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness. You got any more? Faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. There are nine of them. And the Bible doesn't refer to them as fruits. Now, I understand how that 
word, the plural of that word is used, but it clearly uses the word fruit, which, in, which indicates that there is a, a, a working together of all of them as one. And in other words, we have to have all of them working to some degree in our life. And, and it, it, here's how it actually works out. The Bible doesn't give us license to pick and choose which one of those we like or which two or three of those that we think we're going to uh, allow to, to take place in our life. You can't just say, you know, I, I'm into kindness, but that joy stuff, nah, that's, that's really not for me. Yeah, I like the idea of love, but patience, eh, not so much. Quit nudging the person next to you. I can see you from here, remember. I can see you some of you. But here's what I would propose to you, that we need to understand the necessity of balance, even in the fruit of the Spirit in our lives, according to Galatians chapter 5. For balance is what makes something beautiful. Say it again. Balance. And when it comes to the Trinity, to the Godhead, we see that God models all of that in perfect balance. And so in just a couple of minutes, I'm going to take you to a psalm where we're going to see yet another example of this amazing sense of, of balance. And I'm going to use a couplet that I, I, I'm going to draw your attention to because it's balance not only in the greatness of God, but also in the humility of God. Now, we don't often speak about the humility of God. But there are few things that are more impressive than when a person who is in a position of power or a person who is in a position of authority, when they show true humility. Because typically, a, a position of power or authority is a catalyst that leads to corruption. We see that, unfortunately, more often than not. But that's certainly not true with God. And in this psalm that I'm going to take you to, that I'm setting you up here for, we see the power of God the greatness of God, and yet the humility he walks in, and it's going to be absolutely amazing when we look at it in just a second. And nothing demonstrates the humility of God more than that day when Jesus, oh, we love to talk about it this way, when Jesus humbled himself and reduced himself, and we've even used the word shrunk himself to fit within our galaxy and then he reduced himself more and humbled himself more and, and, and made himself even smaller to be able to fit within our time, our years, our months, our weeks, our days, our hours, our minutes. And then he takes on the form of man. But it is this great balance of God that we must ever keep in mind, particularly when we go before him in prayer. We must always keep certain things in balance. Now, I'm, I'm going to mention something to you. I'm going to give you something that someone gave me that you may have heard this acrostic for the word acts, A-C-T-S, acts. Because here's something that we should always remember when we go before the Lord. A, adoration. Say it. C, confession. Thanks, T, thanksgiving. And S, supplication. Adoration, confession, thanksgiving, and supplication. It is a wonderful approach as you go before the throne of God. We adore Him before we go to Him with our supplications or with our petitions, our requests. And we confess our sin and, and we give thanks to Him before we make our needs known to Him. But when we make adoration the first thing in our approach to God, it puts us in right posturing to remember truly how great our God is is. 
And I want to offer something to you that, that will help you in your approach to adoration when you go before God. Now, for many of you, it's, it's stuff that you know, but it's stuff that we need to be reminded of. And some of you, again, those of you who are new in your walk with Christ, well, how do I adore Him? And how, you know, I'm in a Pentecostal church where everybody prays out loud, like all at the same time. And, and I'm not sure, what do I say? And what do they say? And what do they say? And how does God hear all of this at the same time? Is it not confusing? And what should I be saying? Well, let me give you just some things to put in your mind as you come to the point of adoration going before the Lord. First of all, let's remember that He is omnipotent. Say that word. Which is another way of saying that God is all-powerful. Here's what you can be sure of. God, you are able, no matter what the issue is, no matter how big or how difficult my issue is, I can rest assured this, my God is able because He is omnipotent. Can you say amen to that? There is never anything that God looks at and says, that's impossible. There's never anything that you or I face where we say, oh, that's too hard for God. For with God, all things are possible. So this is a great approach in adoration. Well, He's not only omnipotent, God is also omniscient, which is another way of saying He's all-knowing. He knows all things. There is no mystery that confounds him. Aren't you glad that God is never scratching his head saying, wow, that's a new one on me. I've not seen that before. Or I've never crossed, come across that one before. He's never ever do you find God saying, man, I thought I knew all the languages. I, but you know, they're over in Africa. There's, there's talking in something I've never heard of before. No, God is omniscient, and he knows every single thing that is going on. So how do you adore Him? Why do you adore Him? Because He's all-powerful. He's omnipotent. And because He's all-knowing. He's omniscient. And you know what the third one is. And God is omnipresent. The very moment, this very moment that we've been praying today, He's also hearing. Just think about this with me for a second. He's also hearing prayers in Toronto, Canada, as well as Sao Paulo, Brazil. And the people on the islands of Samoa, one of my favorite places on the planet, I know they're lifting up his name. In the next few minutes and hours, they will be doing that. And he's already heard from the Africans in Arusha, Tanzania, as well as the believers meeting in the underground church in Vietnam or in China, because he is omnipresent. He's everywhere. And at the same time, church, we take great comfort in the fact he's hearing all of those prayers, and he can also hear the prayer of us goat ropers here in Fort Worth, Texas. Any goat ropers in the crowd today? Yeah, some of you are closet goat ropers. I know. I know you are. God, our God is not limited by time or space. Bless the Lord. Bless the Lord. And with seven billion people on this planet, our God, who is omnipresent, will never say to us, hang on a second, there's a lot of people talking to me right now, and I can't hear you all at the same time. No, he's right there hearing the cry of every single person every single time they call upon his name. Can I just say, how great is our God? How great is our God? So if you need help to prime the pump of your adoration to God, then just remember that He's all-powerful. There's nothing too difficult for Him. You are not going to come up with something. I don't care how hard your situation is. You are not going to come up with something that's too hard for our God. 
He's omnipotent. He's omniscient. There's nothing he doesn't know. And that means that he calls some things sin and some things not because he is all-knowing. He knows the end of that thing for you that you're getting involved in. He knows where it's going to lead to for you. There's nothing he doesn't know. Nothing he doesn't know how to fix. And he's everywhere. He's able to hear your cry whether you go up into the heavens. He's there. Whether you make your bed in hell, he's there, the psalmist tells us. Whether you ride the wings of the morning or, or you dwell by the farthest ocean, he is there and you can never get away from his presence because he's everywhere. How great is our God. Omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent. And we declare he's great and greatly to be praised. And those three simple things ought to come to your mind when you come to adore him. Listen to me, church. We need to be very careful in this nation. Because it gets very dangerous when we think we know better than God. When we think we've got a better idea than He does. How things ought to go. And what's acceptable and what's right and what is not. Let's be clear. When God defines something, I'm going to trust what God says. More than what anybody else has to say. More than what any politician has to say. More than what any governmental official has to say. When God says this is right and this is wrong, this is sin and this is not, at that point it's not politics, it's truth that says God knows exactly the very thing that's right for us and we'd better learn to trust the word of the Lord. So when it comes to policy, when it comes to politics, you can have all of that, but when it comes to truth, let's learn to trust what God says and none other because He's the one who has all the power. He has the knowledge, and He alone is everywhere. Our God is great, and He's greatly to be praised. And it's this greatness balanced with His humility that is so stunning. And we're going to look at it from the perspective of the psalmist. I'm finally getting to my text. It took me a while, but we're going to get there now. Go to Psalm 147. Psalm 147. And allow me just to briefly set it up and uh, let you know what you're going to see here in this Psalm 147. It is a particularly remarkable psalm. Most uh, biblical scholars will, will say they are, we are not sure who the author is. It does not appear, appear to be a psalm of David. However, in this psalm, what we will see is the greatness and the condescending goodness, and that's a good thing, of the Lord, which are celebrated in this psalm. Let me give you just a little bit of background to it, those of you in particular who are biblical history buffs. The God of Israel is set forth in His peculiarity in this psalm, His peculiarity of glory as caring for the sorrowing, the insignificant, and the forgotten. And the psalmist or the poet finds a singular joy, as we're going to read in just a second, extolling one who is so singularly gracious. It is a psalm of the city and of the field. It is a psalm of the first and the second creations. It is a psalm of the commonwealth and of the church. So some of you got hung up on that last one. What do I mean by the first and second creations? Well, the first creation is taken from Genesis 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The second creation is taken from Genesis 2. The creation of man in Adam and Eve, though there is certainly brief mention of them in Genesis 1 as well. 
Now, you may recall, those of you who study this, that the Medes and Persians captured Babylon in 539 B.C. And in 537 B.C., Cyrus issued a decree permitting the Jews to be able to then return to their land. Led by a guy by the name of Zerubbabel, a large band of exiles went back to Judah the next year, and the temple was rebuilt at that time. And then Nehemiah showed up, and we know what Nehemiah is famous for. He came in 444 B.C. to restore the walls and the gates of Jerusalem. All of this was told to, uh, told to us through the prophet Isaiah and Jeremiah, who, had both, who both of them had predicted the captivity of the Jews as well as their release and return. God's word always comes true. His prophetic word is always true. But the psalmist, who's giving us this Psalm 147, he did not simply note the event, and I'm so thankful for this. He gives us such an incredibly different and more thorough insight. He didn't just note the event. He noticed the way the Lord tenderly cared for your people. For you see, in that captivity, before they returned to Jerusalem, many loved ones, uh, many of them lost loved ones in that invasion during the time in Babylon. And all of them returned to a devastated land and ruined houses. So no wonder they were brokenhearted because their wounds and their, their sorrows were the wounds of their heart, not necessarily of their bodies. Many had repented and confessed their sins to the Lord, and through the Word, the Lord gave them the comfort that they needed. Our God is so great that He knew each person and He knew, knew the specificity of each need just like He does this morning. He knows exactly what you have need of today. He knows exactly the, the wounding of your heart today. He knows exactly what's going on inside of you today. And he knows exactly what you need. Here's what we're going to see in this psalm, that the God of the galaxies, who knows the name of every star, is also the God who heals the broken hearts of people, and that ought to cause the church to say hallelujah. So he builds up Jerusalem and lifts up his people because nothing is too hard for him. So with that background in mind, let me read from this Psalm 147, which starts like this. Praise the Lord! And I want to when I was reading that again and being reminded of that yesterday, it reminds me so often when Jovan steps up before us to lead us in worship, if she's starting or starting a song or whatever, she will say, praise the Lord, everybody. And I know what that means in her mind. She's expecting a, a response from you when she does that. Am I right, Jovan? Because in her world, she, when somebody says, praise the Lord, that automatically evokes a response in somebody else. When any of us as believers hear someone say, praise the Lord, it ought to cause a response to say, praise the Lord. So here's what I'm saying to you, church, this morning. Praise the Lord, everybody. Let everything that hath breath. So this psalm starts out at 147, verse 1. Praise the Lord. That's what the psalmist is doing here. How good to sing praises to our God. How delightful and how fitting. And then, of course, based on the background I've just given you, verse 2 says, the Lord is rebuilding Jerusalem and bringing the exiles back to Israel. And here it is, verse 3. He heals the brokenhearted and bandages, or some versions say binds up their wounds. He counts the stars and calls them all by name. How great is our God. His power is absolute. His understanding is beyond comprehension. 
Now, let me just take you back to verses 3 and 4. For there's something for us there this morning, if you'll stay with me just a few more minutes. Verse 3, he heals the brokenhearted and bandages their wounds. He counts the stars and calls them all by name. How great is our Lord. Now, just think about this with me for just a minute. I want to really, I want to zoom in. I want to focus in on this for just a few minutes. Pokemon can wait, all right? Ten more minutes. He heals the brokenhearted and bandages their wounds. And then, all of a sudden, like a rocket, he catapults us into outer space and says, and he counts the stars and calls them all by name. Think of the distance between those two verses. Think of the, the absolute complete distance between verse 3 and verse 4. He, he lets you deal with your heart. And before you can even catch your breath from saying, thank you, God, that you are binding the wounds of my heart, he shoots you into outer space to remind you that God knows everything that's going on out there, and he knows everything that's going on down here, as well as he knows everything that's going on in here. And in two verses, two verses, the psalmist gives us the full reason why we sang that song a while ago that our God is great. In just two verses, this one who can superintend the universe is also the personal God who is right there. And the psalmist who gives this psalm to us puts no buffer, no, no distance at all between them. He takes you right to the human heart and then he shoots you right into the atmosphere. And at first glance, when you first read it, and I'll admit, you know, I, I, I read that, I thought, wow, what a distance between those verses. How can there even be a connection between the starry heavens and a wounded heart below? Between that which is so infinitely great and vast, and then something that is so small and minuscule and, and, and delicate and fragile. And here's the amazing thing. God sees both of them. And God cares about both of them. And the God that we serve today, church, the one we've sung about, the one that we've worshipped all day today, He can run a universe and He can run our lives. So how great is our God that can do both of those things at the same time. He can deal with heaven with all of its glory while dealing with earth and all of its grief. And there are people in this house today that I know are grieving. Your heart is grieving heavily. He can deal with heaven with all of its awe and earth with all of its pain. But here's what I want us to understand. If you don't hear another word I say, please listen to this. The God of the stars and the heavens is the same God who can see you through whatever it is that you walked in this house with this morning, whatever you are going, whatever you are going through, because that's the God that we serve. Think about the nearest star in our solar system. You know how far that star is away? It is 93, the nearest one is 93 million miles away. And God can be there tending to that planet and still hear the faintest cry of your heart at, it, at this altar this morning or even sitting in the pew where you are. And quicker than the blink of an eye, he can be as close to you as the mention of his name right here on Beach Street in Fort Worth, Texas. Our God can be every place at every time. 
with the power to do exactly what needs to be done, all because He knows exactly what needs to be done and how to do it right. Our galaxy is known as the Milky Way, and there are 400 billion stars in our galaxy. That's a lot of stars. I slipped outside last night. Becky had gone on to bed, and I slipped out the back door just to see what the sky looked like, just to see if I could, how many of those 400 billion stars I could see last night. I didn't see but a few. But I stood there in our little backyard, and I looked up into the heavens, and it reminded me how great our God is for the very reason that I'm sharing with you today. God, you created that star. And you created, look at that, how it's shimmering in the dark sky. You created all of that. You can do all of that, and yet in an instant, all I have to do is say, Jesus, Jesus. Oh, am I talking to anybody today who knows what it is to call upon the name of Jesus at a dark night when it looks like everything is going wrong, and in the darkness of night when the enemy comes in and tries to exaggerate and blow up every problem that you have, if you've known what it is to have a sleepless night because everything just becomes bigger than life, all you have to do is mention the name of Jesus, and whether he's on another planet, whether he's in another galaxy, wherever he is, he comes to you and he's as close as the mention of his name. And not only does he come, not only is he close, but he knows exactly what you have need of today, and he knows how to do it right. 400 billion stars in our galaxy. And you know what this psalm told us that we just read a while ago, if you're paying attention? He knows all of them by name. God, what's the name of star number 5,376,000? I'm lost already. Should never have tried to do that. He knows them all by name. Every one of them. Some of you can't remember the name of your own kids. Come on, Mama, how many times have you gone down the whole list to get to the one? I shouldn't tell this honor, but Becky goes to the dogs, the cats, all of them, and finally gets to the name of the person. How many of you mamas, you've done that before? You called every one of them before you got to the one, yeah. But he knows all 400 billion by name. He knows every star, and he can call it out. The Bible tells us in Ephesians 1, verse 4, that He chose us in Him before the foundations of the world. Kenneth Wiest, one of the great Bible commentators from Moody Bible Institute, tells us that that phrase, chose us in Him before the foundations of the world, there's a Greek word there, katabole, K-A-T-A-B-O-L-E-S, katabole. And what it means that God chose us in Him before He threw out the universe meaning flung the stars in space. Literally, that word, is, it's a word for throwing, like you would throw a ball. So here's God with 400 billion stars in just one galaxy, and there are other galaxies. And the day God creates heaven and earth, He says, galaxy? That's nothing to Him. He throws it out. There, there's the planets. Anybody agree with me? That's a big God. Big God. And then he has the audacity to say in the previous verse that he knows and cares about your broken heart. 
He can throw out a universe, fling the stars into place, and then He can hear your cry at this altar this morning. Only God can do that. Only God can do that. Our problem is that we don't really believe He can do both of those things. Even though the psalmist has given us this incredible statement of balance in the greatness of God and the humility of God, we struggle, most of us struggle, in believing that He can do both of those. We either tend to make Him the God of the galaxies who is far from us. There are people in this room today, I know, who struggle with the idea that God would even want to come close to you because you see Him so distant and so far away. So we either make Him the God of the galaxies who's too far, or we make Him the God of the heart who is so close that we tend to look at Him with familiarity, if not contempt. And both extremes are wrong, if not dangerous. If you only think of Him as the God of the galaxies, then you will be left to question, why would He care about me? If your only view of a sovereign God who can do all things, who is omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent, if your only view of that God is the God of the galaxies, then you're going to say something like this, well, who am I? I'm, I'm nothing. I'm a nobody. Why would God care about me? Why would He even look at me? That's making Him only the God of the galaxies, when you say something like, well, that's, that's wonderful that Pastor Dan, he can call them all by name, but he doesn't care about me. Or we think of him as the God of the heart, and we reduce his size, which causes us to lose sight of this amazingly immense God that we have. So large that the heavens cannot even contain him. But we start to see him so small that he becomes that which we think we can contain. Can I just remind you in all of this, balance is what makes something beautiful. Two things before we close. There will be a close to this sermon today sometime. Number one, two things. God is personal. Say that. Now, I've been here a long time. I've been at this, on staff at this church for since before Moses, I think, long time. And I still can have trouble remembering names from time to time. But I remember last year when Pastor Michael and Linnell came on staff, I remember thinking how challenging it must be to walk into a new church like Bethesda and try to meet all the people and remember their names. Thankfully, they are young and quite bright and seem to have no problem with remembering names, unlike the senior pastor. But haven't we all, haven't you been in that situation like I have many times? Someone that probably you've seen often, talked to often, but you don't know their name. Raise your hand if you've ever been in that situation. And now it's been so long and you've talked to them so often, you're completely embarrassed to ask them. It's like way too late to ask them, I'm sorry, what is your name? Because you've been talking to them like they're your best friend for the last period of time. It may even be somebody here at the church. We, we, we've, all, we've all been in that situation. In fact, there's, there's two phrases that, that I, I just don't like to hear, if I'm just going to be honest with you. The first is this. I have people say this to me from time to time. Now that I have you here, 
It usually happens at a restaurant. Becky and I are sitting trying to have a meal and enjoy it, and somebody walks in and pulls up a chair and sits down. Probably uninvited. They just sat down. And then they say, now that I have you here, everything within me wants to go, you don't have me here. I'm just trying to eat, you know. You don't have me here. And then normally when they say that, it means they want to unload something. You know, now that I have you here. So my staff knows that's kind of a funny phrase that we use. And so when they want to get under my skin, they'll say, now that I have you here. The other phrase is this. And it happens particularly when you've been on staff at one church a long time like me. This, the phrase is this. Somebody will walk up. Do you remember me? Well, if you've not been here in 30 years, and we've not talked in 30 years, there's a good chance that, you know, that, that, that I'm, I, may, I may not, because the very second that you ask me if I remember you, and it's been a long time, let me tell you what's going to happen. My mind is going to go blank. It's exactly what's going to happen. Someone asked me the other day, do you remember me? And my mind went blank. And then she said, but I'm your mother. So, no. Trust me, I know better than that, okay? <laughs> Though I want to be personal with you, and I want to always be able to call you by name, the reality is my, my memory is going to fail me. But what's so great about God is this. All through the Bible, you, you, God is calling people by name. You never once read in Scripture God calling by, to somebody by saying, Hey, you! Never is it there. No, no, he calls them by name, Abraham, Jacob, whoever it is, he's calling them by name, and you know you're in trouble if he uses your name twice. That's like calling today someone by their first and their middle name, and I have to confess, I do that quite often. I'll say, Brent Allen, Priscilla Ann, I will call names. You wouldn't believe how fast they get in my office. It happens like that, and they come a-running. Gets their attention every time. How many know when you were really in trouble, your parents used both your, your first and your middle name? And that was not a good sign typically when that was going to happen. Well, let me tell you, when God says your name twice, you better run. If you hear Simon, Simon, you better run. If you hear Saul, Saul, you know you're about to get saved right in the midst of the noonday in Acts chapter 9. And so here's what God does. He never speaks to anyone generally, but rather goes right to your heart because God is personal. Say it with me. God, that's the humility of God because he knows your name. He knows you by name. Let me tell you something. Donald Trump does not know your name. Hillary Clinton does not know your name. But that's okay because the only thing that's going to happen to one of them is they're going to end up in the White House. However, there is a God in heaven who not only can name every star in the Milky Way and every other galaxy, but he knows your name, first, middle, and last. And that's why you thought I was going to get political there for a second. You got real nervous, didn't you? And that's when the resurrected Jesus gets up out of the grave. And he doesn't say, in that incredible moment of the resurrection, he doesn't say, look at me. Here, let me sign, your, uh, sign an autograph for you. No, no. He says, where's Mary? He calls her by name. And someone go find Peter for me. Because he knows us and he calls us by name. That's because he's a God who is personal and he cares about you. 
And he's whispering to some of you this morning, I know who you are. And I know you by name. The same God who can superintend the universe is the same God who knows your name. Number two, and I'll be done in a minute. He's also a God who can multitask. Now, some of you think you're a good multitasker. But let me tell you, God can multitask. He can keep the heavens in place. And he can keep your heart in place. He can manage 400 billion stars. And he can wipe away tears at the same time. As important as those stars are, as incredible a job as that would appear to be, but he can do that at the same time. He can wipe away your tear. Musicians, you can come quietly, please. All of us as parents have certain moments with our children frozen in our minds, which will stay with us until we go to heaven. I have a moment in time with our daughter that is so clear in my mind, it's as if it happened yesterday. Becky, myself, and Sheridan were all in the front yard. I was sweeping up after mowing the lawn. I was on the front side of the house near the street. Becky was over on the far side of the house. Over here would be the west side of the house doing probably cleaning a flower bed because she likes to do that. Sheridan, our daughter, who was maybe six or seven years old at the time, was on this, this east side of the house doing, I'm not, I'm not sure what. I was just, you know, sweeping up, doing whatever. We were just doing yard work. Becky's way around over here. I'm here, centered kind of, and Sheridan's around on the other side. Now, dads, we have an important place in the lives of our children, but we got to be honest. There are some things that only mama can take care of, and all the mamas in the house said. <laughs> Dad, you and I may be highly qualified, but mama is the one. So all of a sudden, I told you where we all are, all of a sudden, there came that wailing, crying sound, screaming that could be heard around the block. I still to this day don't remember what it was that happened, but something had happened to Sheridan. She had either fallen or been stung by something or, or gotten hurt somehow. It was enough to really cause her to make a lot of noise. Now, she's over here. I'm right here. Mama's clear around on the other side of the house. So I hear the screaming and the crying, and I look up to see her running. So what do I do? I open my arms for her to run to me. I would pick her up. And do what else? You think you know this story already? <laughs> I'm ready to be the big dad at that moment. And what does she do? She cries, Mama! She runs right past me. Like, almost knocked me over. Right past me. Who was fully capable of taking care of her. And she runs to her mama. Well, I'm left to stand there and say, so what am I, chop liver? <laughs> but no. I watched as Mama wrapped her arms around her, wiped her eyes, comforted her. You're going to be mad at me because I'm going to make you cry because I know how bad you miss her right now. You see, to that Mama, that little girl was not insignificant. 
It didn't matter what else was going on. It didn't matter what else we had to do that day. It didn't matter whatever task we had. That little girl wasn't too small. She wasn't a nobody. She wasn't a bother to her mama. She was hurting, and she needed to be comforted. In our text today, verse 3 says, He heals the brokenhearted, and He bandages their wounds. There are some synonyms when you study this word to broken heart. It means to be shattered, collapsed, broken into pieces, to be smashed. And God goes, I see that heart, and I'm able to heal it. There is a Hebrew dictionary called the Theological Word Book of the Old Testament. I have it installed in my computer program with all of my books. It is sometimes uh, it gives you a little deeper look at words from the Old Testament. And if you look up similar words like smashed, collapsed, pieces, shattered, which is exactly the condition of the heart of some of you in this room today, this Hebrew dictionary gives a very picturesque look at the word brokenhearted and its synonyms. Authors Harris, Archer, and Waltke say this. I'm going to ask you to stand to your feet. No one leaving the room. Just stand to your feet quietly. It says the word broken is a word which means to be out of breath. It's actually a picture word. It's a picture of a horse that has been ridden so long and so hard that it, it can't go anymore. It is out of breath. It's out of strength. And it's, able, it's unable to go even another, another step. When you are broken, it goes like this. You don't have anything left inside of you to take another step. You're exhausted. You're finished. You're done. I don't mind being personal enough to tell you something Becky and I discussed on the way to church today, this morning. A lesson we've learned, as you know, I had surgery three months ago. She did a couple of weeks ago. And yeah, we've, we've hit some pain levels. You know what we've learned? Physical pain also brings emotional pain. Those of you who've really suffered physical pain, you know exactly what I'm talking about. You begin to question everything. It's exhausting. You begin to think, what about my future? Am I always going to feel like this? Is this it? Is this the way it's going to be? Am I never going to have any more strength? Just fighting physical pain requires so much more of you than you even realize. And then the enemy gets in and has a heyday. But God says this. It's to that heart that is broken and shattered and in pieces it's to that one who says, I am so broken that I am exhausted. I am done, Pastor Dan. I am finished. But it's to that person that God says through this psalm today that I am able to restore hope again to that heart. Oh, hallelujah. It's to that heart that he's binding up, bandaging. It's to that heart that he says, I can put life back in that heart again. Whatever it is that has caused that heart to be broken, it might be physical pain. 
It might be the disillusion of a relationship, a broken relationship with a family member, a son, a daughter, a parent, a husband, a wife, a friend, whatever it is. But church, the message today is very simple. That the God who flung the stars in space is the same God who wants to touch and heal your broken heart today. One other little thing. Because there's a danger when you have a broken heart. You feel helpless. You feel vulnerable. And you are. You feel fragile. There's a danger. When people find themselves going into sin, you know what that is? It's very simple. Many people find themselves going into sin because they are looking for an alternative to a broken heart. They're looking for something else to make them feel better. But I want to be clear today. I'm sure you know this, but this old preacher is going to remind you. There is no drug that can heal your broken heart. There is no drink that can heal your broken heart. There's not another relationship that can fix your broken heart. There is only one who can heal a broken heart. And he is the one who flung galaxies into place. And his name is Jesus. And he knows you by name.